this, this morning we're going to go into a brand new series in the book of, of Nehemiah. And uh, we're going to look at this issue of, of lives rebuilt. And how does God rebuild a life? How does God rebuild your life? How does God, how, or how did God be, rebuild my life in the 80s when I went through a period that just total hurt and pain and shame and all the stuff. And I watched God completely rebuild my life. And, and so there's principles in scripture of that. And so, so for the next few weeks, we're going to look at the principles about how does God rebuild a life? How does God restore a life? How does God walk through those, those processes of, 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 of healing hurts and pains and discouragement and all those other things that come with it? And so the book of Nehemiah, in case you're unaware of the book of Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah is about a man who goes back to Jerusalem and rebuilds a wall. Now, we could ask the question, what's so interesting about that? I mean, how could that be interesting about a man rebuilding a wall? Well, here's the deal. That's, that's just part of the story. The deeper story is this, is God rebuilt the lives of people. The lives of people who have become unfaithful and he took a a group of people and he rebuilt their lives that were once unfaithful back to faithfulness and he restored them back to the place where they were without any, without any judgment, without any hurt, without any. And so that's what we're going to look at for the next few weeks. Now, Thomas Carlyle wrote the book, the, the, it's a classic book, the history of the French revolution. And so he wrote the book when there was a time when they didn't have computers and word processors and typewriters and all of the stuff that we had today. He wrote the book with pen and paper. And so he worked on the research for well over three years. He wrote 1,500 pages of handwritten pages. And so when he finished the manuscript, he he handed it off to a friend of his, John Stuart Mills. And he asked John Stuart Mills, he said, would you mind proofreading this before I I publish it because I want to publish this book. Now remember, it's three years of work that went into this work. He hands it off to his buddy, John Stuart Mills. John Stuart Mills takes the work, puts it in a basket, and then in the evenings, next to the fireplace, John Stuart Mills would simply read through the transcript, make some edits, make some comments, and he was working his way through. Well, John Stuart Mills went away on a, on a trip for a couple of weeks. His maid thought that that basket of paper was just there to start a fire to help, like kindling. And so by the time John Stuart Mills returned from his trip, she had burned up all of Thomas Carlyle's manuscript. Three years of work. Can you imagine that? Three years of work. When John Stuart Mills told Thomas Carlyle what had happened, he went into deep depression. And so he went into his house, he, he closed the blinds, they said he, 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 he didn't eat, uh, he, he didn't drink uh, anything, he just, he was in deep depression. And after about three weeks, uh, he opened a blind, one blind in his living room, and he started watching a man across the street whose brick wall had totally been demolished and, and had fallen down. And for eight hours a day, For about another two weeks, Thomas Carlyle watched this man rebuild a wall until he got to the point till the wall was completely rebuilt and it looked like it had never been destroyed and never fallen down. And Thomas Carlyle thought to himself and says, you know what, if that man can rebuild a wall one brick at a time, surely I can rebuild this manuscript one page at a time. This time it only took him two years uh, he completed the work, and, and now that book is a classic of the history of the French Revolution. Let me tell you something. That's, those, that's like a lot of us, right? I mean, if we're honest, if, if you've ever gone through a time when your world is crumbled around you, when you go through hurt, when you go through pain, yes, there is a time that we go in, we want to isolate, right? We want to we go into the house. 
and we want to close the blinds and we want to wall off the outside world and sometimes there's mourning and sometimes there's hurt and sometimes there's pain and sometimes there's all those emotions with it but but here's the deal at some point we got to be just like Thomas Carlyle and say you know what I can rebuild my life I can rebuild the the what what has been lost or the hurt or the pain now listen just grab this thought as we walk through this discipline not desire determines a man's destiny we have got to understand that as we walk through this series together if you have your Bibles you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 1 it's in the Old Testament we're gonna go all the way through that chapter this morning and we are gonna look at maybe the first principles of how God rebuilds a life because this is so critical to us you're gonna understand how God rebuilds a life you may be able to look back on a period of your life and say wow I didn't really know the principles at that time but that's true because that's how God rebuilt my life you're also gonna be able to look at and maybe say you know what that's why some lives are rebuilt and some lives aren't there are some lives if we're honest even though they're believers their life is never rebuilt they just go through the same circumstances and consequences they stay in the same endless cycle they never go out the life is never rebuilt we're going to be able to answer some of those questions but here's the deal discipline not desire determines a man's destiny there's a lot of people that desire for their lives to be rebuilt. There's a lot of people that have a lot of great desires, whether it's in their profession, whether it's in their career, whether it's in their spiritual life. I got a desire to be closer to God. I got a desire to improve my relationships. I got a desire to, to walk differently. I got a desire to change some things in my life. But we know this, desire is not enough. And we're going to look at this in the book of Nehemiah. It is discipline. It is being being willing to put some disciplines in place in your life, like Nehemiah did, to begin walking and begin allowing God to put yourself in a position, to put yourself in a place so that God can rebuild your life. Now, a little bit of history. The walls had been down for about 141 years. That's critical to this story. So God has called Nehemiah back to rebuild the walls. Watch this. Nehemiah uh, chapter 1. Here we go. Uh, The words of Nehemiah. Okay, a little bit of context. This is his life journal. You're going to notice this through the book of Nehemiah. A lot of personal pronouns. I mean, it's very personal. This is like being able to peer over the story, uh, over the shoulder of one, and read their life journal. I don't, I don't know if you guys journal. We journal in my house. My wife journals. I journal, and and we have some rules. We have rules that we never are allowed to read each other's journals. uh, and, and so and neither one of us have ever broken that until, until we die. Then we get to read them, but not until then. <laughs> I don't know why I said that, uh, but it's true. <laughs> and uh, because you know what? A journal is very personal. A journal is very personal where you start, you, you pour out some of your deepest feelings, emotions, or questions. So we are reading into the life journal of a man that is journaling about how God rebuilds a life, how God built his life, of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, who is Hakaliah? You know what? Nobody knows. He's never, ever mentioned in the Bible. Listen, this is so important for me and you to understand. Don't ever think that your family is too insignificant for God to use. God uses insignificant people. There's all kinds of people that I talk to and I tell them, you know what? God desires to use you. God desires to use you in ministry and in life and where you work, in your church, wherever. And people generally come back to me and they say, you know, they say, you know what? God can't use me. You don't know what I've been through. Uh, I wasn't raised in a Christian home. I haven't been a Christian very long. Maybe you have used some of these excuses or some of these reasons, but here's the deal. 
We don't know who Nehemiah's father is. I mean, we know who he is. We don't know anything about him. Nehemiah could have said, you don't understand. I was raised in a pretty insignificant family. God uses, Book of Ruth, remember? God uses insignificant people who trust him. So let's move on. Now it happened in the month of Chislev. That's the month, uh, the winter season. We'll, as we go on, we'll exp- understand all this. In the 20th year, and I was in Susa, the capital. Nehemiah is living in Susa, the capital, which is the most powerful place of the time. God placed Nehemiah in a position, in a place, in a time to accomplish what God had called Nehemiah to accomplish. Listen, you don't have to fight for position. You don't have to fight for access. God will put you in the places of life to accomplish his will, just as he did with Nehemiah. Nehemiah is in the place where he can accomplish God's will. Verse 2, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them uh, concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the exile what, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, I just have two principles for you this morning. The first one is this. It's easy to see the problem of sin when we are dealing with the circumstances. It is easy to see the problem of sin, the danger of sin, why God tells us don't do it. It is easy to see the problem of sin when we are dealing, when we are dealing with the circumstances and the consequences. Before the consequences come, you have people all the time, God doesn't know what he's talking about. You don't know what you're talking about. That's not going to happen to me. I'm smarter than everybody. I mean, I mean, I've got this figured out. I know when to stop. I know boundaries. I know all this stuff. I'm not like my friends. I'm not like everybody else that reaps all these consequences and all these problems. Listen, it is hard many times to convince people the consequence or the pain or the hurt of sin or the backwash of sin, especially before the consequences come. But I'm telling you, when people are living in the consequences of sin, the consequences of some decisions or some actions they've made, it's easy. It is easy to see the problem of sin. The fact is, you can go and and read a little bit of of history in this in the book of Lamentations. You find that the people uh, uh, that were in exile that Nehemiah is talking about, you find that when the consequences come, they sat down, they wept, they mourned, they were sorry for their decisions. And and so, verse 3 of Nehemiah shows us the consequences of sin that we deal with. I mean, look at this. In verse 3, it says... uh, who who had survived the exile. So they were unfaithful to God, so God scattered them, okay? The walls were brought down, and watch this. Consequences come, and watch. And there is great trouble and shame. Isn't that true? I mean, isn't that true in our life? We really don't need the, I mean, if, if you've walked through that, then you can look at the Bible and say, man, oh man, I know that's true. But if you've never walked through that, let me just tell you, the consequences of sin always brings great trouble it always it wasn't just a little bit of trouble things were not going well for them and you know what it not only brings great trouble in relationships and situations around you but you know what it always brings shame right I mean, to where we want to be like Thomas Carlyle and go into the house and isolate and close the blinds and not really eat and not have any contact with anyone else because the consequence of sin, one of the dangerous things about it is it brings shame and embarrassment 
We don't want our friends to know. We don't want our parents to know. We don't want our family to know. We don't want our church to know. And we don't want the people that are close to us. The consequence of sin always brings great trouble, great shame. But then it also, he says, the walls have been destroyed. The walls are broken down. See, we don't understand the whole wall deal. For them, walls of, of, of a city, walls of, of, of Jerusalem provided security, provided identity, provided safety. You know, that's something that also goes in the consequences of sin. A lot of times we lose our identity, we lose who we are because things are so chaotic and so crazy around us. Well, you'll hear people all the time in the midst of shame and great trouble and consequences of sin and they'll say, man, I don't even know who I am anymore. Man, I'm doing things that I thought I would never do. I'm dealing with situations that, you know what? It also takes away our protection where the future gets pretty scary. We don't know if we're safe. We don't know if we'll be protected. I mean, things are not going well for them. But here's the crazy deal. The walls had been down for 141 years. This is not new news to Nehemiah. Nehemiah, his whole life, the walls had been down. He's known about this his whole adult life. Why now? Why is he upset now? I mean, the reason he's upset now is because his heart has become sensitive to the things of God. Nehemiah is sensitive to the sins of the people. Nehemiah is sensitive to, to the things of God. And Nehemiah is stirred up over something that he has known about his whole life. And finally, he's going to do something about it. Okay, let's make this personal. It's not new news that will motivate you to change. Just not. See, we think a lot of times when people are around us and they're, they're, they're making some choices of sin or, or they're making some choices that we know that they're going to reap some consequences that bring great trouble and great shame, we think that, you know what, if we give them new news, if we give them some new information, then it will move them to change. Can I just tell you, new news will not motivate you to change. Nehemiah had known this all of his life. It is old problems that still need to be solved in our lives. It is not new news that will motivate you to change. There can be things in your life that you know have been in your life for a long time. And it is not new news that will motivate you to make that change. You know what it is? It is becoming sensitive to the heart of God to where you desire to make those change. Just let me ask you, how many times do you have to deal with the consequence of your sin and your actions before you're going to do something about it? How many times will you have to stay in that cycle of, of situations and circumstances and trouble and shame and consequences before you're going to do something about it? How many broken relationships are you going to have to go through in life before you finally come to the point to where you're sensitive to things of God and it motivates you to make some changes? Listen, it is dis discipline, not desire 
that determines a person's destiny. It is not just the desires to live closer to God. It's not just desires to have a better relationships around you. It's just not desires to have a better marriage. It's not just desires to, to have, to walk differently. It is much, there's a lot of people that desire for things to change in their life, but that is not enough. It is discipline that you and I are willing to place in our life. What is going on in your life right now where you would say, you know what, there is great trouble and there is shame that you're refusing to do anything about it? How many times do you have to hear about the trouble and shame of people around you before you do anything about it? See, we're no different than Nehemiah. It's not new news that will motivate us to change. It is coming to the place to where we're truly sensitive to the heart of God. See, the first work of rebuilding the wall, because it's really more than just rebuilding the wall, it's rebuilding the lives of people that have been unfaithful and walked away from God. And God desired to rebuild their life. But it always starts when someone becomes sensitive to the heart of God. It's not new news. By and large, all of us, we know what needs to change, be changed in our life. And someone just telling us doesn't really even help us. It's coming to the point. We become sensitive to him. Here's the second and the last principle is this. The spiritual restoration always begins with prayer. We're going to see this through this book, but can I tell you, it starts there, but it doesn't stop there. See, most of us, we want it to start there and stop there. I mean, really. And so watch this. Verse 4 is critical to understanding the book of Nehemiah. The fact is, without verse 4, you don't have the book of Nehemiah. I mean, the book of Nehemiah hinges on verse 4. Here's what the scripture says. And Nehemiah says, And as, I, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. For four months, all Nehemiah did was pray. And Nehemiah prays. In fact, is he prays 10 different times in this story. And the wall is rebuilt in 52 days. When you look at it, Nehemiah prayed longer than he actually rebuilt the wall. But let's just understand this. Nehemiah prays, he works, he leads, he's disciplined. It's not just desire that the walls, walls will be rebuilt, but he becomes, leads a disciplined life. Let me tell you something. It, spiritual restoration starts with prayer, but it does not end there. See, a, a lot of times we, spiritual restoration in, in this time in a contemporary society is, is uh, we just, we, 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 we want to cry over our sin. We want to, we want to be, we, we cry and, and we may pray and ask for God to forgive us and all of that stuff and all of that stuff is good. But guess what? If it starts there and ends there, our life will never be rebuilt. It is much deeper than that. It is, much, it, it is this desire for, for God to be glorified in, in our life. And so here's just some characteristics about this type of prayer. The first characteristic is this, is there has to be brokenness over your sin. 
See, there's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is this issue is, man, I'm just sorry I got caught. I'm sorry you're upset with me. I'm sorry there's situations are bad. I'm sorry I'm going through great trouble. And so that's like worldly sorrow. And worldly sorrow never brings healing. And so there's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. There's a difference between brokenness and, and brokenness over your sin will move you to make changes. I mean, you want to know if someone's really broken over their sin? You want to know if someone's really um, going to rebuild their life? How do they respond after they pray? What do they do after that? And see, when you're broken, when I'm broken over sin, we don't try to excuse it away. Brokenness always leads to changes in someone's life. A lot of the times, the reason that we don't make changes in our life, we're not yet broken over our sin. We're just sorry we got caught. We're sorry we're dealing with the circumstances. Here's another characteristic of prayer. There is an understanding of the greatness of God. That's why that song touched me so deeply that, that Chad sang about, uh, about God, and he's greater than any other God, and he's God of heaven. And, and listen, if you do not have a high view of God, you will never pray. And I'm just, the first section of this prayer of Nehemiah is all about him being right with God. If you don't have a high view of God, you'll never go to him in prayer. Because you don't have a high high enough view of God to believe that he'll really help you. Nehemiah, here's an interesting thing. Nehemiah waits till the end of this prayer to make a request. So many times in my prayer life, I start off with request. No, I start off with request and I end with request. Not Nehemiah. Watch this. And I said, O Lord God of heaven who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Nehemiah understands who God is. He's a great and powerful God. When he uses the term, O Lord, of, uh, o Lord God of heaven, well, he's talking about not the location of God. He's not reminding God. He's not reminding himself, God, you're in heaven. You know what he's doing? God, you're, you're sovereign. God, you're in control. Oh God, O Lord God of heaven, you're over everything. You're over my boss. You're over my situations, you're over my relationships, you're over the government, you're over the economy, you're over my future. Oh God of heaven, you are over everything. You're over the kings of this earth, you're over the presidents of this earth. There is no one more powerful than you. And he moves on and he says, and the great and awesome God, listen, until you see God like that, great and awesome, you will never go to him in prayer. You want to know how high a view you have of God in your life? How often did you pray this last week? What request did you take to him? Or does he just get you on the weekends? How great is he in your life? How awesome is he in your life? Nehemiah is consumed by this high view of God. And he goes on. Who keeps his covenants? 
In the Lord's Supper, we, we, I read a verse that says, and in my blood there is this, this new covenant. We're in a covenant relationship with God. Totally different than a, a contract. You see, when we're in a contractual relationship, contracts lead, give loopholes for a way out. It gives each of us a way to bail. You do this, I'll do this. That's why some people like living together rather than marriage. Marriage is a covenant. And, and he's reminding he's God, we're in a covenant relationship with you. There's security there. God, I am always your child, regardless. I mean, you have told me that I am in a covenant relationship with you. There is security. It can never be, a covenant cannot be broken. Contract, yeah. And Nehemiah's like, God, I am so thankful I'm not in a contract and you're looking for a way out. There's security there. And he goes on, steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. He said, God, you're always merciful to your people. And Nehemiah, and we'll learn in the weeks to come, is about ready to go for, for a, an earthly king, the most powerful king of their time. And that if God doesn't move, that, 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 that Nehemiah won't get to do what he, is, what he feels God has called him to do. And Nehemiah is reminding God, God, you are even more powerful than the most powerful king that you are totally and completely reliable. And he's going to a guy of great power, but he knows a God of greater power. He's going to a guy that is higher than any other on the planet. But Nehemiah said, that don't matter to me because I worship a God that's higher than anybody else. Another characteristic of prayer is this. There is a desire to be right before him. You'll never make changes in your life till you become sensitive to the things of God and to where you're like Nehemiah and you desire to be right before him. Let me ask you just real quickly, is God reliable in your life? Do you look at God totally reliable in power and strength and awesome? And Nehemiah had this deep desire to be totally right before God. Listen, you will never understand yourself until you understand sin. You just, you just won't. And until you understand who God is. Isaiah chapter 6, remember when, when Isaiah went and saw, saw God high and lifted up? And he understood, he, I mean, he saw the seraphims and the worship and all that was going on. And, the, and, and Isaiah's reaction in verse 5 was, man, I am ruined. Woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. He had a problem with his mouth. He began confessing sins. He wanted to be right with God. That had been in, in Isaiah's life. If you go back and look at Isaiah's life, that had been in his life for a long time. It wasn't new news that changed Isaiah. He saw God who he really was, and he desired to be right before him. He said, God, I am a man of unclean lips. Woe is me. Do you have a desire to be right before God? Because if you never come to that point, you will never make the changes in your life that you need to make. Here's another one. There is personal confession of sin. 
And he was walking through the characteristics of, of, of prayer, the characteristics of comp- con- confession. And so, but I want to remind you, in the weeks following, we're going to see the other steps, the other building blocks that we put in place to what God uses to rebuild a life. He says, verse 6, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, for your servants. He's interceding for other people. He's praying for other people, not only himself. Watch this. Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. That's important. The next sentence is important. Even I and my father's house have, have sinned as well. Before you can rebuild a life, there has to be confession of sin. It's to acknowledge sin, you see, and and it's specific. I mean, Nehemiah says, God, I sinned. Our house sinned. Man, he he took responsibility for his sin. See, and it was specific, and we're going to look at this in in a second. It was specific. See, see, we're just good with the whole deal. Dear Lord Jesus, please forgive me of all my sins. Okay, I'm good. Boy, if you don't confess the sin specific and acknowledge to him what is sin in your life, you will never make the changes in, in your life. You see, we're in a culture that, man, we like to blame, Right? We live in a culture that doesn't take responsibilities for their actions, and so they blame everyone around them. I blame the government. I I blame the city. I blame my mama. I blame my daddy. uh, I blame past relationships, ex-boyfriends, ex-husbands, ex-wives. I mean, I, I blame bosses. We live in a culture, and guess what? Our culture encourages that we're at right now. Fact is, uh, last week the news story came out about the lady that's suing Google. Um, she has a, a smartphone, and she used Google walking route, and so she got on there and wanted to go to a park in, in, in an area that she was visiting. So, so she got the directions, you know, turn by turn or walk by walk, however it works when you walk. I've never used walking directions. And, and so she's walking along, and, she, and, and so the, the route that Google gave her, uh, she had to cross the street. She crossed the street, got hit by a car. She's suing them because they didn't tell her that a car is coming. And guess what? It'll go all the way through the court system. We live in a culture that if they don't tell you the coffee's hot and you burn yourself, you can sue and you can get a lot of money. If you get Google Maps and they don't tell you a car's coming and you get, you get hit by a car, they're responsible, not you. And so it's easy for us to look sometimes at that and laugh and say, hey, that's ridiculous. I can't believe that. How about in your personal life? How about the consequence situations and things that are going on in your life and, man, you're blaming everyone around you. And you see, Nehemiah took ownership, took responsibility. It, part of rebuilding your life is willing to own what is yours. You're part of the problem. You're part of the situation. And watch this, verse 7. He says, we have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant, Moses. He gets really specific about the sin in his life. And verse 6 and 7, he confesses about who he sins against. Watch this just real quickly. Verse 6, which we have sinned against you. Verse 7, we have acted corruptly against you. 
See, we like to make sin about relationships. I sinned against Joe or Bob or Mary or my boss or whoever. I should have kept my commitments. I should have done this. I shouldn't have gossiped about them. I shouldn't have slandered. I shouldn't have gotten angry and said the things I did. And as a result, I sinned against them and I hurt them. But Nehemiah understood that ultimately we sin against God. It's an offense to God. And it hurts. See, we, we want to keep it on the level of people because it's less emotional. And are you right with God? Do you ever desire to be? Here's the last characteristic of prayer. There's confidence in the word of God. And there is great confidence in the word of God. Nehemiah, Nehemiah has a very influential person. He, he's the cupbearer that, that, that we'll talk more about in the days to come. But he's a cupbearer to the king. Now, the cupbearer to the king, he was like the secret service of their time. I mean, the way that they would assassinate the king during their time, during their cultures, they'd poison him. So they had a cupbearer that traveled everywhere with the king. He was very influential. He was very powerful. Uh, he had an ear to the king. He had an ear to the queen. Everywhere they went, he went. Uh, he was responsible for the life. He was a man of great integrity. Because if someone could buy off the cupbearer and they could poison the food, then they could assassinate the king. And so this was a very trusted person. Nehemiah was very, very successful. He had a very strong resume. He had a lot of accomplishments. And guess what? He did not trust in his resume. He did not trust in his, 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 uh, his accomplishments. His trust, his confidence was in the word of God. Verse 8. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are faithful, he start reminding God of his word. The most powerful prayers that you and I will ever pray are when we pray God's words back to him. When we pull scripture out and we pray, God, remember when you said this, God, in your word, you said you would do this for me. Watch this. If you are unfaithful, I will scatter among the peoples. But you, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to, to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. In scripture, this is what is called a conditional promise. There's unconditional promises and there's conditional promises of scripture. Unconditional promises are uh, when, when we accept Christ into our life, that is an unconditional promise. For the rest of your life, you enter into a covenant relationship with me, you'll always be my child. Nothing you can do can ever change that. That's an unconditional problem. A promise, but there's conditional promises of scripture. If you do this, I'll do this. Nehemiah takes out a scripture and says, God, your word said that if we're unfaithful to you, that you will scatter us. We've been scattered. But your word also says that if we return to you, you will bless us. And God, we're returning to you. See, this is not to continue in sin. But this is a willingness to have a whole new way of life. It's what confession is all about. That's when God rebuild, begins to rebuild a life. If when we agree with him and we repent, we say, you know what? The way I've been living is not good. The, way I've, the choices I've made, my actions, is not good. And God, you said that if we return to you, you'll bless us. Verse 10, they are your servants. God, I want to remind you, they're your children. They're the people that you came into a covenant relationship with whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. You sense the confidence of Nehemiah in his word. Verse 11, 
O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and to give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Nehemiah is one of the most powerful people in the world. And he's going to the most powerful person in the world, the king. And if God does not move, Nehemiah will not have success. He has total dependency on God. Can I just tell you this? As we just close, some people will only be moved by prayer. I get questions all the time as a pastor. How do I change my husband? How do I change my wife? How do I change a prodigal? How do I change my son? How do I change my daughter? Uh, how do I change my boss? How do I change a friend? How do I change a situation? And, and can I just tell you this? You can't. It's not new news that motivates people to make changes. It's when their heart becomes sensitive to God. There are some people, a lot of people, that the only way they'll change is through prayer. That person in your life that you're concerned about, the only way you may change them is through prayer. And release them to God. You thought about this week, praying for that person, whether a husband, a wife, a prodigal, a boss, a supervisor, a friend, and intercede for them the same way that Nehemiah did? If you don't believe that God changes the hearts of men and women and boys and girls, guess what? You never will. Pray. You may need to release yourself this week of trying to control and change the people around you. See, Nehemiah had a desire first that his life would be right with God. There's some of you here this morning that you could give testimony like me, like in the 80s for me, when God rebuilt my life. And you can give testimony of what God did in your life. And you can praise him for that. But there's some here this morning that you're saying, you know what? God needs to start rebuilding my life. The relationships that are around me, I can't keep going through great trouble and great shame and all the consequences because God's word teaches that he wants to bless and he wants to give peace and he wants to give comfort and he wants to give joy. But it's discipline, not desire, that determines a person's destiny. Did you make a commitment this morning to put the disciplines in place? Walk with me through these next four weeks and understand the principles of how God rebuilds a life.